We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, and uh, we did verses 1 to 7 last week, so I'm just going to pick it up today in verse 8, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, and uh, I realize, Lord, that the words uh, that I speak, uh, unless you attend to them and give them life, they just fall to the ground, so may the Spirit of the Lord Take the words of uh, Scripture, and may you, Lord, speak to our hearts. And we ask, Lord, uh, this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're uh, talking about Solomon, and he's talking about, really, uh, practical wisdom. And this chapter is written uh, within of uh uh, Proverbs. It would be like reading a chapter out of Proverbs. So we're going to basically go through uh, this verse by verse. And uh, the way that we interpret Scripture is very simple, literally. And I would just say that if the literal sense makes plain sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense. So, when the Bible talks about certain things literally, then if it makes plain sense, that's what it means. If it means Jesus speaking that he would desire to take Israel under his wings, like a hen takes a chick and protects them, it does not mean our Savior is a bird. It simply means that he would like to protect us as a mother would protect its children. There will be an exam. All right, verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The uh, key words in the first 10 verses of this chapter is the word better. And uh, we see it a number of times. And in verse 8, he says, The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Uh, That is particularly true of my golf game. And uh, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, he said finishing something is better than starting. He said patience is better than pride. And when we look at the word better, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be more enjoyable or that it will be more fun. It just says that there is something better. And if we're talking about applying godly wisdom to our life and we look at Scripture, then we know that the end is going to be better than the beginning because the end of our life is eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you these things, but because I am, I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you and you will be with me in my home. So we know that uh, the end, in this case, is better than the beginning. And if we look at Scripture and all of the people that God called to serve him, whether it be the patriarchs or the judges, the kings or the prophets... Uh, many, many events in their lives were not fun and they weren't enjoyable. But they entrusted themselves to godly counsel and wisdom and the end was better than the beginning. It was even better than the process. So why uh, why do I say that? Simply because there's a biblical principle that's given to us in the Bible And it's in Philippians 1.6, and it states this. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us, or in you, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, we know that God is faithful. He started a work in us. Uh, Sometimes we look like a a construction zone, 
there's debris all over the place, there's piles of dirt, and you drive around and you go, what in the world is this all about? And then you come back a year later and there's a bypass in a beautiful building. But at the time, it just looked like a bunch of construction going on. So we, we know in this sense that when we entrust ourselves to God, that the end is better than the beginning. It doesn't mean that it's possibly more fun, but the Bible tells us that we can trust the Lord, that whatever he's doing in our lives, he's going to complete it, and that's what we walk in and hang on to. Does that make sense to you? Uh, I was reading a commentary. It's called Preach the Word Commentary, and it, I want to quoting a verse 8 as a dark and cynical comment about the vanity of life. The sooner we get done with all this, the better. Yet it's clear from what the preacher goes on to say that he is making a positive point. When he talks about the end of something, he's talking about its result or outcome, the end product. Many things uh, that do not seem all that promising at the beginning turn out well in the end. This is always true of anything that has the blessing of God. All's well that ends well in his gracious plan because we do know, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for his good. Uh, if you drop down just a couple verses in verse 10, he reiterates this same thought where he says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. If the temptation in verse 8 was pessimism about the future, the temptation here is about nostalgia in the past. Some people like to talk about the good old days. They want to go back to uh, the way things were, possibly because they forget how bad things were back then. Rather than looking forward, we always have a tendency to look backwards and of course, the classic illustration of this in the Bible is the people of Israel when they were brought out of slavery and brought out of Egypt, and they were going towards the promised land. They had been powerfully delivered from Egypt and from the bondage that they were cruelly under. They had seen God destroy the Egyptian army in the waters and now they were in the desert sitting around the campfire and they were complaining against God and they were longing for the good old days back in Egypt when they could eat leek and onion soup. We're like that a lot of times. God brings us out of something and then we start walking through what we call the deserts and we don't realize that in the deserts, God is working deep purposes in us. And we go, oh, to be back in Egypt. The good old days when we were slaves. Eating leeks and onions around the old campfire. Sure, we were beat within an inch of our lives. But hey, who cares about that? We should be looking forward and not backwards because our salvation is nearer now than when we believed. Secondly, he says, the patient is better than the proud in spirit. Looking at life this, uh, this way requires the attitude that the preacher talks about in verse 8, where he does say patience is better than pride. Rather than assuming arrogantly what we think God should be doing or that we know best, uh, he's just saying, humbly submit yourself to God and wait for him to work things out. And that doesn't sound really inspiring to us, but learning all the time. Verse 9 says, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Who would like to identify themselves as being a fool today besides me? The ESV, the English Standard Version, says, Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. One of the easiest ways to tell whether we're really trusting God's timing or not is to see how angry we get when things don't turn out our way. Uh, this is called the sin of exasperation. It's right there in Baldwin, chapter 3, verse 2. You can read it. Then in verses 11 to 19, 
he gives us some practical proverbs about wisdom and life. In verse 11, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. The NIV says, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and it benefits those who see the sun. Having an inheritance come your way is a blessing, even more so when you have the wisdom in knowing how to steward it. Conversely, a fool who comes into an inheritance is like the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told his listeners. Remember, the young son said to his father, give me my inheritance. I don't want to wait till you die. I want it now. And then he went off into a foreign land and there he squandered all that he had only to find himself living, a good Jewish boy, living in the pig pens of the Gentiles. The Bible says when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father. The old saying is true, a fool and his money are soon parted. So having an inheritance with wisdom while you're still living under the sun is a good thing. Verse 12 says, for wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. The ESV says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The rendering of the word defense there in the Hebrew is actually means a protective shade. In other words, money can give us good things in life, but that, doesn't certain, that certainly doesn't equate to a good life or eternal life. And the Bible tells us that there's a difference between the things that money can buy that are good, but actually having the things that are valuable in life that makes a good life. There are a lot of people who have a lot of money but don't have a good life. They have everything that you could want in life, and people can envy them and say, boy, it would be good if I had all of that. And yet you can look at people who have a lot of that and say life sucks. So money should always go with wisdom, is what um, Solomon, I think, is saying here. And, uh, of course, where does wisdom start? Well, Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he tells us in uh, another chapter that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is an interesting verse, isn't it? The preacher says, consider the work of God. Have you considered the work of God? If God puts some twists and turns in our path, are we going to argue with him about it and tell him to straighten out? That's kind of what's happening here. The bigger question that we probably would want to consider in this verse is, why is not the way straight for us all the time? Why does it seem crooked? Again, when we look at the whole of Scripture and how God deals with people and nations, it seems to me that God always selects the best, the best paths, but never the easiest ones. Some are crooked because God is dealing with attitudes in our lives. Some are crooked because there's disobedience and a lack of faith in God's words and in God's ways, and he wants to demonstrate to us his trustworthiness. Some are crooked because he's bringing us into a greater fullness of fellowship with him. Some are crooked because he's protecting us from ourselves. The other thought that occurs to me when considering these types of verses is that God always knows the straightest point between A and B. And sometimes it's the crooked, the crooked path that he chooses for us so that we might arrive where we need to be in a way that pleases him. Either way, I am content that he is God and I am not. And everyone should be thankful for that. I'm very thankful that you are not God and he is. Because if I was God, you'd all be booted to the curb along with myself. And 
before you judge me, you would do the same thing. And we'll talk about that a little later in this chapter. But either way, I am content that he is God and I'm not. And for my part, I will trust him, even if at times the paths seem crooked and not straight. I might not understand it, but I don't have to understand it. I simply need to trust him. And this is part of the practical advice that Solomon is giving to us as people. Verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Think about it. There are days that Solomon says will bring joy to our lives. Days of prosperity. Perhaps prosperity of wealth, prosperity of friends, prosperity of joy. Life is good. You get up in the morning, the sun is shining, and you're looking forward to it, and there are days where there are days of adversity. And these days of adversity make us reflect upon the character and the trustworthiness of God. Because any time that we go through adversity, the first thing that the devil whispers in our ear is, if God loves you so much, where is he now? Where is this great God of love? Where is this God who says that he'll give you peace that passes understanding? Well, one thing I do know with certainty is that God is always working in a way that protects me from trusting in myself rather than in him. Adversity has ways of purifying us. It has ways of winnowing the trivial and temporal to what is lasting and eternal. Adversity has ways of getting our attention and asking ourselves what's really important in life. And often it's, 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 it, it takes us so long to get to a place of actually considering God. When things are good, it's like, you know, party on. But when adversity comes, Solomon says, consider God. I don't think it means consider God in a negative sense. I think it means consider God in the sense of what are the big questions in life that you're asking and what really are you building your life upon? Verse 15 says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. Well, that's seeing a lot. That's saying a lot. And there is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. This is true. Good people die young, and wicked people can and do live long lives. This is a vexation to Solomon's soul, and not only to his, but to all people who desire justice for the wicked and reward for the righteous. But we have to ask ourselves here a few simple questions. And the first one is, is if we have an atheistic viewpoint of life, and this life is all that there really is, I would say that this is very vexing because there's no justice for the wicked. You die and that's it. They have the most marbles and they win. So Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot, and Mao, and everybody else, they win. That's vexing to me. Second, I would ask this, who is wicked and who is righteous? Who deserves a long life and who gets the short stick? Look at verse 20 of this same chapter. It answers the question, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Now, if you're ever wondering about <clears throat> whether or not we qualify to be saved, 
this verse tells you that we do. For the Bible tells us that there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Now, hold on, Dale. I do a lot of good things. And I treat my fellow person just as I would want to be treated. I would go, I agree to, with you to a point, but are you telling me that you do everything right all the time? Are you saying that there's none of us in this room that has never had a thought or a word or an action that has been unjust? Because if you think that, then you've just committed the sin of lying. The Bible simply states that we all need forgiveness. And that leads me to a third question. Which one am I in verse 15? Am I the righteous person or am I the wicked? Well, if you talk to the average person, everybody else is more wicked than you. Right? I might not be perfect but I certainly am not an axe murderer. Well, that's high praise. I might not be totally righteous, but I'm more righteous than Dale. That's not high praise either. See, the fact of the matter is, is where do we start with this question? It's kind of like this question of why is there wickedness and evil in the world? I, I, I don't really know the whole answer to that question. People have grasped with, grasped, grappled with it for a long time, but I always ask this, uh, okay, if you were God and God needs to deal with evil in the world, where do you suggest that he begin? Well, first of all, we should take out ISIS. You know, these are really bad people. They're murdering. They're raping. Really, Okay, check, take care of them. Where do we go next? You know where I'm going with this? So we take out all the really bad guys. Okay, what about the people that have cheated on their spouses? What about the people that have lied on their income tax? What about the people that have slandered people on the internet? Is that not worthy of taking care of this problem? You see, here's what I'm getting at. You can agree or disagree, it's fine, but if God were to take care of evil, there'd be nobody left on the earth. Because there's not one just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Oh, I need to say bye-bye. Because I've become real enough with myself that the real problem with the world is my heart. And that's why Jesus came and died for our sin. To save us from ourselves from our deluded, self-righteous thinking that we are good enough without him. And that's really where this verse leads. Because if we feel that we deserve a long life because we're righteous, then Jesus died in vain. See, Jesus didn't come to die to give us a self-improvement program. He came to die for wretched sinners like you and I, who are lost and going to hell apart from his intervening grace. That's the gospel. It offends people. I get it. I understand. But the fact of the matter is, is that either Jesus is who he said he is, or we might as well just go and join a rotary club and better the world, which there's nothing wrong with doing that, but it won't save you. So the question is really is, it's all about Jesus. Did Jesus die as a vain, dis disillusioned madman walking around the plains of Galilee? 
Or did he come in fact and say, I've come to seek and save that which was lost? And that apart from him, there is no other way to the Father, which he claimed to be. So my case as a, as a gospel preacher, as someone who believes the Bible, is it's all about Jesus. He is who he said he is, or I'm just a delusional human being. And so are you. So I put the ball back in anybody's court and say, read the Bible for yourself. Read the Gospel of John. And if you can come away from it and saying Jesus was just simply a good person who came and had some good ideas to help us live moral life, I would say that you're missing what he said about himself. You either have one or the other, but there's nothing in between. And that's the good news. The good news is the gospel is just that easy to comprehend. It cuts like a knife, but it feels so right, or whatever Brian Adams said. See, Christ died for the world because we're lost. Christ came and died for the world because you're lost. I'm lost. If I'm not lost, then Christ is a delusional person. And the Bible is not true. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and there is no justice. Now, if there's another way of seeing this, let me know. I'm, I'm open, but I, I don't see a third option here. Verse 16 says, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. When I first read this, I went, what's this all about? Is Solomon on the timeshare of wickedness and righteousness? Pastor Warren Worsby says that in the Hebrew text, the verbs in verse 16 carry the idea of reflexive reflexive action. I have no idea what that means, but in the Hebrew, it means the idea is not uh, the idea is not practicing holiness and sin in moderation. The idea is don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. Or in other words, he was warning against them, against self-righteousness that leads to pride, and that, which comes from thinking that we have arrived and know it all and we're more holy than we think we are. R.N. Wabry from the New Century Bible Commentary, you all remember him, says... This is an alternative, however. There is an alternative, however. When he tells us not to be overly righteous, he might be telling us not to be self-righteous. Grammatically speaking, the form of the verb that the preacher uses in verse 16 may refer to someone who is only pretending to be righteous and is playing the wise man. Preaching the word commentary, and the reason I'm quoting all this is because When I came to this verse, I go, I have no idea what this means. If God's standard is perfection, and if we are called to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then how could anyone ever be overly righteous? No, our real problem is thinking that we are more righteous than we really are. Somehow, there never seems to be any shortage of people who think they are good enough for God. Consequently, we apply the same spiritual logic spiritual logic to being overly wicked. Hey, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as the other person I'm comparing myself to. Yeah, I tell the occasional lie, but not whoppers like Mark. And that's where you say, Mark, preach. Solomon makes an application here in verse, and also not to remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. The New Living Translation says, pay attention to these instructions, for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. 
Michael Eaton says in his commentary, the verse is difficult to understand, but when the preacher tells us to take hold of this and not to withhold our hand from that, he is looking back to the advice they gave in verses 16 to 17. He's saying something like, the right life walks the path between two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's uh, naivety uh, about wickedness to run its own course. And when we do this, we will avoid death and destruction that will surely befall us if we live sinfully and self-righteously. Verse 19 says, Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. In this simple analogy, the preacher just simply says, Imagine a city governed by a council of ten. Now, most cities would be fortunate to have one wise leader to protect the city. But there is strength in numbers, and in this particular city, there are ten wise rulers to govern its civic affairs. But he says a wise person would have the strength of a well-governed city. Wisdom governs thought, so the wise person knows how to think. He knows how to think about things in a God-centered way. That's what being a Christian means. You think about life in a God-centered way and not a me-centered way. That's why Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, you would what? Take up your cross and follow me. Wisdom governs the will so that the wise person knows what choices to make in life. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. There's a new king on the throne. It is no longer moi, but it is King Jesus. And I'm seeking to do his will, not because I have to, but because the Holy Spirit that now lives in my heart gives me the desire and the want to to say, I long to live the way the Lord wants me to live. So when people say, you know, you Christians are just a bunch of law keepers, rule makers, joyless, uh, not so. When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our hearts, we have a new master, and we find that life and joy to walk in agreement with Jesus and I have found that the more I lay down my life by the grace of God, the more I enjoy life. Wisdom governs actions, so the wise person knows what to do in any and every situation. So being a follower of Jesus produces fruit. Jesus said, by your fruit, you'll know them. Bad trees can't produce good fruit. Only bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. And Jesus said, by your fruits, you shall know them. So wisdom governs action. For any born-again follower of Jesus, there should be attending fruit in our lives. There should be the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul lists in the book of Galatians. There should be love and joy and peace and self-control, patience. And all the other ones doesn't mean that we're perfect in it. It just means that there is a desire to move towards letting Jesus take more and more control of our choices and our attitudes and our wisdom. We've already touched on verse 20, so we'll look at verses 21 and 22. Also, do not take to heart everything people say. I'll read that again. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Boy, what a verse for our social media generation. Uh, I'll just give you an opinion, okay? This is not based upon... I read this in a science journal. I think that social media is putting so much pressure on kids today that it's affecting them adversely. 
That's just an opinion. I think a kid, well, anybody can pick up their phone, log on to Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or whatever it is that you like to use, Twitter, and all someone has to say is something and it goes around the world in a matter of seconds and if they decide to target you, how incredibly hurtful that is. Also, do not take to heart everything people say. It's excellent advice, since to take too seriously what people say of us is really asking to get hurt. And in any case, we have all said some things that have wounded others. And that's the kicker to this verse. Solomon is saying, listen, don't take everything to heart. There are some things that you should take to heart, but don't take everything to heart. And just remember all of the flippant and stupid things that you said about other people. Reminds me of the humorous story of the young clerk who was working at the produce department of a grocery store. A woman approached him and said, I'd like a half a head of lettuce. He said, ma'am, we don't sell half heads of lettuce here. She says, be that as it may, I want a half a head of lettuce, young man, and I want you to go and get it for me now. Now, because this guy was a servant and realized that the first rule of business is the customer is always right, even when they're totally out to lunch, they're always right. So he proceeds to the back of the store. He goes through the swinging doors to the staging area where the produce department is. He comes to the manager. He does not really realize that the woman has followed right behind him and is standing directly behind him, out of his view. And he says to his manager, Hey, Frank, you won't believe this, but there's a nutcake out there that wants a half a head of lettuce. To which he starts pointing, and he looks back, and this woman would like the other half. This is not one of my finer moments in life. I was 23 years old, and I was on a ferry from Stockholm over to Helsinki. I was with two friends, and it's an overnight sailing. So you leave at 6 in the evening from Stockholm, and you arrive in Helsinki the next morning at 6 a.m. And so as you're Going on your voyage, they ring the bell and you all go into the, to the, the deck where they serve you dinner and you sit about eight people to a table. So my friends and I sat down and uh, this family, a mom and a dad and a son and a daughter, the son and the daughters were about the same age as us and so the, the mom and the dad were uh, a little older at this point. And the mother, the, the lady, was uh, just absolutely, uh, she was, uh, boy, she complained a lot. I mean, from the moment she sat down to the moment that she was on her husband like white on rice, she was complaining to her kids. She was complaining to the staff. She was just like totally out of control. And of course, they were talking Swedish, I assume, because they were talking a language I didn't understand. And I figured since we're in Sweden, there was a good chance that it was Swedish. So I turned to my buddy and I said, man, is she over an old bag? And her daughter looked at me and said, you can say that again. I said, excuse me, I feel like I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> if we're wise, we will let our own sinful words remind us not to take what other people say about us too much to heart. But 
to make allowances for them, offering them the same grace that we often need in our own lives so often. That's the power of the gospel. I think about Titus chapter 3, verses 2 to 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there in your phones, in your Bibles. You know, uh, when people turn in their Bibles, we call that evangelical air conditioning. See, this is the power of the gospel in action. Here, Paul's writing to Titus. He says, speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Why? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, Verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, this is exactly what Solomon's talking about here. He said, hey, you know what? Speak evil of nobody. Because that's what you used to be like. But now, when the kindness and love of God has appeared to us, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by His grace, we don't talk like that anymore about anybody because that's the old man. That's the power of the gospel. God showed us mercy. His saving and sanctifying grace has come into our lives and now we have the wisdom to be able to hear things but not take it to heart and we hope that people will show us the same grace. Verse 23, all this I... What's... Is that 5 to 12? Well, I got another hour. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was exceedingly deep. Who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. He returns to the main question. He said, you know what? I've applied myself to right and wrong, to the crooked, to the straight, to the wise, to the foolish, to life, to death. And there are a lot of things that I've concluded that are just beyond my pay grade. And I'll have to live with that. And perhaps the smartest thing that anybody could say in their life is, I'm not smart enough to know everything there is to know. And that's a lot of wisdom to say that. I think one of the smartest things that we can say is, I'm not that smart. I think you have to be pretty smart to say that. Or fairly humble anyways. Either way, it's a good thing. Verse 26, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. And here is what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Ah, has Solomon turned into a woman hater? Read closely. What he is saying is, is that there is a woman whose heart is like snares and nets, and whose hands are like fetters. All he is saying here is that a woman who thinks in her heart, and all she thinks about is taking people around her captive to her wishes and desires, is like a heart that has snares and nets. Likewise, her hands are like fetters or like chains. What I think he's describing here is a woman that has become so self-centered that everything that she thinks about in her heart and everything that she does with her hands is in a self-serving way to bring people to make them prisoner to her will. Now, 
it's something to consider whether this is a literal woman that he's talking about because he had a thousand of them in his life. Or, here's another consideration, is this the spirit of sinful foolishness that is contrasted with the spirit of wisdom which is in the book of Proverbs? For in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often personified with the personal pronoun of she. For instance, in verse 20 of chapter 1, wisdom calls aloud outside, she raises her voice in the open squares. Then, in the next seven chapters, he talks about another woman who is out to seek and and to destroy the life of the wise man through fornication and adultery. For instance, in Proverbs 2.16, he says, "...to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words." Proverbs 5, 3 and 4, "...for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey." And her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Proverbs 6.32, For whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does so destroys his own soul. That is a spirit of foolishness. Now, it's just a thought whether uh, Solomon is talking about a literal woman that he's thinking about here, or whether he is talking about metaphorically a a spirit of wisdom versus a spirit of foolishness, you can make up your mind. But he does say, whatever it is, to be linked with such a person, he said, I would find that more bitter than death. But he who pleases God will escape her. Why? Because you have godly wisdom and you fear the Lord. Verse 27, here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other, is to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Although the preacher does not say it right out, the implication seems that he is looking for a wise and righteous person, and he says, out of a thousand men I have found one. And out of a thousand women, I have found none. Either way, I think the implication is wisdom is hard to find among people. Lest we think that the preacher viewed men more positively than women, let's uh, remember in verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It reminds me of the story of a funeral of a wicked man. There was in a town two wicked brothers, and they controlled everything in the town. There wasn't a person in the town that these brothers had not cheated, swore at, fought with, mistreated. They were the worst of the worst. They were despised and wicked, and the whole town knew it. One day, one of the brother ups and dies. And the other, wanting to salvage some dignity and respect for his brother, goes to the local pastor and wants to cut a deal. He says, Pastor, I know that your little church is growing and you need a new place in this town to relocate. And I know that you're looking at a piece of land right in the middle of town that I just happened to own. I'll tell you what. You do my brother's wedding and I will give you that piece of land for your church for quarter of the price that it's actually worth. But there's one thing you have to do. What's that, asked the pastor. You got to call my brother a saint during the funeral. I'll do it, said the pastor. The day of the funeral arrived, and the whole town was there to see what the pastor would say about this wicked man. And so the pastor began. Folks, we're here today to bury Frank, the brother of Fred, What can I say about Frank that we don't know already? He cheated everyone in this town. He was a drunk. He ran everyone out of money. He was dishonest in every way. He swore at us. He drank himself to an early grave. But I want you to know, compared to his brother Fred, he was a saint. I think what Solomon is saying here is comparing yourself to one out of a thousand is not high praise. 
Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here's the conclusion of the matter. It is a Christian doctrine about original sin. And theologians have long looked at this verse in Ecclesiastes 7.29 because it tells us about the creation and the fall. It begins, strangely enough, at the beginning. That the way that God made us in the first place is good, but man has had a fall. And that he has been scheming ever since. And this as far as Ecclesiastes 7 can take us. But it's not the whole picture because even though we've fallen, Jesus has come to rescue us and that's the good news of the gospel. And so to conclude today, Solomon asks the big questions that everyone does. I'm looking for wisdom. Where will I find it? I'm looking for satisfaction. Where is it found? I'm looking for purpose and why am I here? And he ends with the conclusion of what Christian theology teaches the world, and that is this. You're created by God. You have a purpose in this life. And God, I hear that, and God wants you to know his love. And so he simply says, agree with God, admit Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how hard it is to do these things, but from my point of view, I'm not asking you to find a secret decoder ring. I'm not asking you to build a double lane over to Hawaii, though I'd love if you did that. God's not asking you to do any of these things. He just simply says, admit your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus, and confess with your mouth. So, this morning, uh, we've had some practical wisdom from chapter 7. I hope that it's encouraged you in your walk this morning. And I'd like to pray with you now as we finish. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day and for uh, the things that we've considered. And I pray, Lord, that you will encourage each and every one of us. And... uh, wherever you are on your journey of faith, of seeking, I pray that that the Lord Jesus will speak to your heart and that uh, he will bring you to a place of considering him. And so, Lord, uh, I just pray for anyone that would like to open their heart this morning to the Lord in faith, to agree with you about the sin that is in all of our lives, that you exclusively have come to die on a cross and to, Lord, forgive us, and then, Lord, to bring us into fellowship with you and uh, may uh, a people find you this day. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name we pray. Amen.